I don't want to just create a, a market of niche products that are premium in price, but to have ones that are accessible to everyone. And I think that's the only way in which we're going to really be able to drive down the suffering that animals uh, endure in factory farms. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hi. This is Jerry Saver, and you're listening to episode 44 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show, the podcast about the people creating the plant-based future and running vegan brands, where you can get inspired, learn how they got to where they are, what's their approach, and what works when you're setting up your own plant-based brand. Now, in this episode today, we're taking a look at the nonprofit side of vegan business from the founder of one of the best-known and fastest-growing animal rights organizations in the world. I'm talking to Nathan Runkel, who founded Mercy for Animals in 1999 at 15 years old. And since then, they've grown into an international nonprofit that's been behind many of the most impactful undercover investigations of industrial animal farming. They achieved legal victories for animal rights, and they're heavily active in corporate outreach and education. And all of that was started by a determined teenager from Ohio farm country who still leads the organization today. So Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's my honor. Yeah, well, no, the honor is mine. I'm really glad that you're joining us today. I think you're one of those rare people who are just completely in tune with their purpose on the planet. At least that's the impression that I get about you. So um, what is your purpose and how long have you been aware of it? Yeah, well, I think one of my primary purposes in life is to make the world a kinder place for all sentient creatures. This is something that I have really felt in my core and in my being since I was a young child. You know, growing up in a rural environment in a village of less than 2,000 people on a farm, I was surrounded by animals from the moment that I could remember these early interactions that really taught me that when it comes to having personalities and minds and the ability to experience not only pain, but also pleasure and joy and have uh, emotional bonds with family and friends, humans are not alone. Uh, These sensations and, and these emotions are what unify all of us in the animal kingdom. So I think from a young age, I was always able to put myself in the place of other animals, and even for just a moment, ask myself what life is like for them. And if they were feeling pain or suffering, I had a lot of empathy and compassion for them. So it was a a number of different animals, including a little rat named Caesar, who I talk about in, in my new book called Mercy for Animals, that really, though, started to teach me that it wasn't just dogs and cats that deserve our consideration. It was all animals, including those like rats that many people consider pests, um, but also cows and pigs and chickens and animals that are labeled farm animals. So it was a farm animal abuse case at our local high school when I was 15, however, that really prompted me to sort of change course in my life to dedicate my time to helping animals. And it has been the most fulfilling and rewarding work that I could ever imagine. It is so great to not only be able to live my values every day as a vegan, but to actively work to improve the world by being an animal advocate. Yep. That's 
kind of the impression that that I got. And um, the incident that you mentioned in, in that book, what really shocked me about it, and that's what I think that you found out really fast as well, is that what that kid was doing with the piglet, that was actually standard industry practice. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, just a, a short recap for those who, who aren't familiar. Um, at my local high school, there was an agriculture class and the teacher of that class was a pig farmer. And it came time in the curriculum where they were going to do a dissection project. So the teacher decided that he would kill some piglets on his farm, bring them to school for the dissection. The morning that he arrived, however, one of these piglets was still alive. And a student in the class grabbed the piglet by her hind legs and slammed her head first into the ground. Ultimately, the case went to trial on grounds of animal cruelty, but it was dismissed uh, the very first day because it's considered, quote, standard agricultural practice to kill piglets in this way. It's called thumping. It's a, a standard form of killing piglets on pig farms. So yeah, at, at a young age, I could see very clearly that there was a hypocrisy in our society and a moral inconsistency of how we treat farmed animals and how we treat animals labeled as food. And it was clear to me that if this was a puppy or a kitten that had been killed in this way, the outcome would have been very different. There would have been cruelty charges. There were the the perpetrators would have been referred for psychiatric evaluation and likely would have been prohibited from ever um, having animals again. That was really the defining moment that, that pushed you in the direction of what's now Mercy for Animals. That's right. You know, I, I, was, I had learned about factory farming before that. I had gone vegetarian when I was 11. I started, um, you know, being involved in animal advocacy to some extent before that. At the age of 13, I convinced my parents to drive from our farm in Ohio to Washington, D.C. to go to my first animal rights conference. But this incident made it very real. It made it very local and it made it very urgent to me. So I was actually training to be an Olympic competitive figure skater at that point in my life. And I hung up my skates and completely shifted my life's focus. And I'm very glad that I did every day. You outline a lot of that in, in your new book. And it reads a lot like Mercy for Animals just grew organically like a grassroots organization. But I'm, I'm sure that there was a lot of planning going on in the background. So I, I hope it's okay if we spend some time talking about that. Yeah, sure. You know, the organization is 18 years old now. So it in the early days, I was too young to even drive. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. So when people ask me, oh, how did you start Mercy for Animals? Because they're looking to start something, whether it be a business or an organization themselves. I tell them, I'm happy to share my story, but this isn't exactly what I would recommend that you do in the <laughs> beginning. A lot of the early days was just putting one foot in front of the next and trying to find footing as an animal advocate and trying to become more effective. But certainly, as time went on and, and I grew up and matured and, and um, my knowledge base uh, grew and, and expanded, the organization certainly became far more um, strategic and it was a lot more planning. And, you know, now the organization has 130 employees in six countries. Last year, a budget of about $12 million. So we do a lot of strategic planning. We do a lot of review of what's effective, where is the biggest impact per dollar spent. In many ways, it is 
it is running a nonprofit business with the mission being the product that we are putting forward into the world. And, you know, the results of the work um, being the product that people are supporting. And rather than having customers, we have constituents, which are animals, and we have supporters that are making donations to allow us to help our constituents. Yeah, you don't really give out many details about this in the book, but um, how was growth for Mercy for Animals? Like um, from those early days where I'd still love to hear what you were focusing on back then um, to the point where you're at now, like what, what sort of reach do you have if, if you know any specific numbers on the number of people that you reach or the number of cases that, that you do each year? Yeah. So, you know, in the beginning, we were trying to work on all issues facing animals. We did work against rodeos and circuses and the fur industry and farm animals were a part of that. But there became a point where we crunched the numbers and we decided we have only so much time and energy and so many resources. How can we save the most lives, spare the most suffering, do the most good? And for us, that simple equation means that we have to focus on farmed animals. They really are the 99% when we just look at the numbers, 9 billion a year, nearly 300 every second, just in the United States alone. So the organization's focus narrowed, which allowed us to be experts in what we do and to really drive meaningful change. Now, in, in terms of the scope of the organization, as I said, we have 130 employees in six countries. So Canada, US, Mexico, Brazil, India, and the greater China region. We have you know, millions of supporters, millions of, of followers on, on social media platforms. We, uh, through our corporate campaigns, for example, have won victories with over 200 companies. And some of these being Walmart, McDonald's, Nestle, the largest players in the food industry. These policies affecting over 90 countries, impacting over 1.2 billion animals every single year. Each dollar that's donated to the organization to give uh, an idea of impact uh, helps spare one animal from ever being born into a factory farm, but helps improve the lives of over 110 animals through corporate policy changes, through legislation, uh, working to help pass um, citizen-driven ballot initiatives. Um, so we reach about a quarter billion people a year just through our online video content. We get about 3 billion impressions from online content. So there are so many different um, points that you can sort of judge or evaluate um, the reach of the organization, but those are a few of the high-level ones. Now that you're talking about those numbers and uh, the thing that you mentioned before about focusing on on the things that have the, the biggest impact and really specializing for just that one area, it's, you know, we, we could actually be talking about any sort of startup here because it sounds to me you're really taking the the same approach here you're trying new things you're tracking the results and you're really always thinking about what brings the biggest impact yeah that's that's absolutely right and you know we like to try things just like any uh, startup business or any effective business and if it doesn't work but we've learned lessons from it that we can you know pivot and apply to a new approach or, or try a new strategy to us, 
that is success. Um, and it's important as an organization that we never become too comfortable in an approach. You know, for example, when we started the organization, we didn't have YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. You know, social media wasn't around. So the approaches that we had at our fingertips were very different. You know, we would have to sort of go to, to, to various lengths just to get mainstream media coverage for a short amount of time in hopes of reaching a large audience, or we would need to pass out leaflets on street corners. And while there is absolute value still in those approaches, there every year um, is new, more innovative ways to reach people and to reach people who are most receptive to our message. Um, we have statisticians on staff that review um, what we're doing, the messaging that we're doing. We do a lot of consumer uh, focus groups and message testing. We're always refining what we do for, for maximum impact. We do A-B testing with various you know, buttons on our website. So everything that, that we do um, through email layouts to click-through rates to open rates um, are, are really taken from the business world. And to us, R&D, whether it's messaging or, you know, whatever it is that we're putting out as part of our product of helping animals is, is really important that it's not just guesswork, but we do everything we can to make sure that it will succeed. You know, since you mentioned social media, did you see any big increase of in, in reach and growth when that ball started rolling, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, communications is one of the, the largest departments uh, at Mercy for Animals. Um, we have, you know, one of the largest uh, social media reaches of, of, of any animal organization, but, but oftentimes our engagement and reaches in the top of any nonprofit organization period um, in the country. So for us, it's really um, important to Uh, have our hand on the pulse. And we do a lot of work with social media influencers, for example. Um, you know, if you look at young people who are really driving a lot of the um, diet change in this country, you know, there's a study done that found 1% of baby boomers identify as vegetarian, 4% of Gen Xers, but 12% of millennials. You know, it's just so clear that this is where a lot of the, the change is driving. A lot of these young people you know, their view of celebrity is very different from that of baby boomers or Gen Xers. They're looking at Instagram celebrities and Snapchat celebrities and YouTube celebrities, people that, you know, older generations have probably never heard of or platforms they've never used. But this is the new face of celebrity. And we have people um, at, at Mercy for Animals who work full-time to engage with these social media influencers to use this platform and, 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 and their channels to reach people um, in a new and, and powerful way. But, you know, Mercy for Animals, I think, was sort of uh, was part of a new wave of organizations that really did a lot of our fundraising through um, online giving and through email giving. And uh, it still is a really driving force of the, of the organization. And I think that part of that was just the time when the organization came about, um, the people were using the internet and starting to use the internet in a much different way. People were starting to become much more comfortable um, using their credit cards online and, and making gifts or, or, or making purchases. But we did it at MFA out of necessity. We just didn't have the 
the funding to do direct mail programs, which are incredibly expensive and take a very long time to, to get a return. And now, you know, a lot of the older organizations that really built themselves on direct mail are scrambling to try to integrate themselves into to online giving. Um, so, you know, I think the nonprofit world changes and shifts just like the for-profit world does as technology um, adjusts. And it's important that we change with it and that we are um, ahead of these changes instead of behind. Yeah. And since you mentioned that you are definitely incredibly successful at attracting massive support, um, we just take the, the recent Mercy for Animals gala as an example that that was a couple million dollars raised in just one evening. You have any specific tips for doing that? I mean, not a couple million dollars in an evening, obviously, but just leveraging technology and leveraging the the approaches that a nonprofit can take to to get support and donations. Yeah, I mean, it's in many ways these these galas are a year of work rather than one night. So a lot of times that people will say, "Well, you raised a million, two million dollars in one night," and it's like. Well, it's actually about a year's worth of work <laughs> from our team to get there. Um, but, you know, in, ter in terms of specific advice, I mean, we, for, for us as an organization, it is important to have a diverse base of support. Um, and, and we don't rely on, on one channel of, of um, support. Uh, you know, uh, we diversify that. So that means special events. That means uh, raising money through social media. That means a diverse um, digital advertising and, and marketing campaign that includes you know, email solicitations. There is direct mail. We um, do work with, with major donors and foundations. So I think it, you know, for those that are really specifically in the nonprofit sector, it's so important to just diversify where your funds are coming from so that if there ever is a shakeup in one form of technology or one form of support that your the organization can still grow and thrive and that you're you're always looking to bring in new supporters while elevating the supporters that you have i mean it's it's sort of basic you know business principles you want to keep it costs more money to attract new customers than it does to retain customers and uh but but you always want to be attracting new customers because there's always going to be a drop off and recidivism and um that's true with with organizations as well i really like the the way you think about it because as i said before it's it's pretty much business but applied to to a non-profit organization and i think it might actually be a, a stumbling block for for many nonprofits that they view themselves as somehow different from for-profit organizations. Or in the most extreme cases, they might even view raising money as something that's below them morally because they can just go out and, and hand out flyers or do undercover work, which obviously this is how you started. But um, when you know how to raise those funds you can definitely make a bigger impact. I mean, that's exactly it. You know, I started the organization because I wanted to help animals. That was, and that is still why I do the work that I do today. But in doing that, there have been lots of skills that I have had to learn as an individual and as a leader of an organization. I have had to learn how to give presentations in front of 
thousands of people. I used to be really terrified of doing that. And I've had to learn how to manage people. So many things that I certainly, you know, when I started this at 15, didn't think would be necessary to help animals. But as it became clear that these were the things that would drive the most change, you learn them. And, you know, for me, I would work myself to the bone and and oftentimes still do. Um, But I realized early on that one person can only do so much. You can work 24 seven until you work yourself to death, but there's still only so much that one person can do. So you need to grow the size of the team. And to do that, you have to grow the size of the pie. Um, And volunteers are absolutely crucial. They have always been such an integral part of Mercy for Animals and, and other organizations. But there are so many projects and campaigns and initiatives that absolutely require funding in order to take them on to help animals. And, you know, when organizations grow, uh, it's important to have people who are dedicated, who can dedicate their time full time to work on this cause, who are experts in the field of what they do. You know, at Mercy for Animals, we have full-time attorneys who are working on behalf of the animals in the courtroom and to change laws and full-time designers and video editors and communications people and people that work with companies. I mean, this requires a diverse um, base of of, uh, people that can work full-time and that takes money. That takes resources. And to me, when I realized that a key part of being an effective activist for animals to drive change meant that I needed to spend time to raise money for animals and embrace that notion, the organization started to grow and our impact for animals started to grow. And we started to be able to help a lot more animals every single year, which again, is at the core of, of why I chose to do this work in the first place. And I think for a lot of um, people that are stepping into the nonprofit space, for example, they, they don't want to ask for money because they feel that they're asking to take something away from someone. And that is just the wrong way of thinking about this. It is really presenting an opportunity for people to become engaged and to help become part of the solution. And that is one of the most empowering things that you can do. That is one of the most empowering um, opportunities that you can offer people. And I have conversations with our just incredible, selfless, generous supporters all the time. And they thank me. In fact, many of them say, don't thank me. I thank you because you allow me to sleep at night knowing that I'm making a contribution to address something that is so horrible in the world. And that really is is at the, the core of so much of this. And I talk in my book about how living a meaningful life and a generous life is not an act of sacrifice, it's an act of fulfillment. And how by giving your time and financially, Um, studies show that people's health actually improve, people have more meaning in their lives. And I think that that is an important fundamental shift in how we think about fundraising is this isn't about taking away. This is about giving people opportunities, letting them be part of solution, part of making this world a better place. I was going to ask you, what are some of the most important things that you've learned along the way? And I think you just answered that question beautifully. So I'm I'm just going to turn it around, even though you touched on it 
as well and, and ask you, what else do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that a nonprofit can make? Well, I think there are a lot of mistakes, but I, I think it's important as you grow to focus on your team. Um, you know, th there's a saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And, you know, for me, as the organization has grown and it is, you know, far larger than any one individual, it's really important to attract the best talent, but also to um, build the best teams. And that means um, that, that, that workplace culture and how teams interact and how they move together as a unit in the trust and respect that um, is in a team is absolutely vital. So. You know, forgive me for repeating myself, but all of these business lessons that you are sharing here, how and where did you learn them? And have you ever considered, you know, writing a book on on this specifically? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think a number of things. One is my, my father was an entrepreneur. Um, he went to school and graduated as a veterinarian. He actually had a horseback riding camp. That's how he met my mom. Um, quickly realized that there wasn't a lot of money to be made as a veterinarian or hosting a horseback riding camp. Started a computer business out of um, a, a spare piano room in our farmhouse uh, in the, the early 80s and grew the business to be 700 employees um, uh, and, and then sold the company. So, and he still is an entrepreneur today. Uh, you know, I think once an entrepreneur, it's in your, your brain and in your DNA and you sort of can never quite rest. And, and that's certainly my father. So I think I picked up the sort of entrepreneur bug and spirit and mentality from my dad without even knowing that these are things that I was witnessing from someone else. That's part of it. Um, another part of it is, you know, I... I always feel like I am just at the beginning marker of my work with MFA and as an individual. And I think that means admitting ignorance, admitting that, that you are, that you want to learn and that you want to grow. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we just make as human beings is thinking that we know more than we do and becoming too confident in what we believe that we know and not having curiosity about the world or about yourself or about your own thought process. Um, so for me, I always try to stay curious and uh, open. And in terms of have I thought about, uh, you know, getting into the for-profit space or writing a book on this, I haven't thought about writing a book on this because there are a lot of books written on this topic by people who are far wiser and more experienced than me. So I wouldn't do that. Um, I have thought of, of the for-profit space and I've been able to help in that space by helping to start launch the Good Food Institute, which supports innovation in the, the food space and um, also New Crop Capital, which does direct investment in in um, food companies and in the, in the plant-based space. So I see the absolute transformational power of the for-profit space in helping address the issues that animals face in our food supply, as well as the health issues and environmental issues and everything else. So I believe that conscious companies 
are a form of activism and advocacy. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe one day I'll also start a business on the side. But but for now, through New Crop Capital, through the Good Food Institute, I feel like I'm able to contribute in some meaningful way in a space that I have a lot of respect for and, and really um, believe um, is going to be a large part of what helps change the world um, for animals and, and bring it into factory farming as we know it. Yeah. And incidentally, those two, the, the Good Food Institute and, and New Crop Capital were kind of the catalyst for me for starting this podcast because I saw them as an indicator of things just accelerating. So I've been aware of investments in the plant-based space and the, the leverage that business can give us. But I remember reading about the um, formation of both of them pretty much started at, at the same time. And I remember reading about that and thinking, okay, so, you know, things are obviously shifted into high gear and what can I do about it? So this show that we're talking right now is in, in part a result of, of your work too. Oh, that fills my heart. And I, I think that's just so beautiful, you know, and in my book, I talk about things that people can do because after reading the book or just learning about factory farming, as you know, you know, most compassionate people want to say, what do I do? And I talk about some, some general things that like, like giving to, to charity, effective charities, as, as we discussed and being an online advocate and, and getting involved in the political process. But I really do encourage people to, to think about how to use their unique talents, skills, connections, passions to carve out their own niche. And that is exactly what you have done. And, you know, to me, that is so inspiring. It is the sweet spot of doing what fills you up and excites you and stimulates you while also marrying it with the causes that you care about. Yeah, I have to say that it was a great combination of veganism and and business. And like you said, helping conscious companies grow and hopefully get get started as well. That, that was kind of the purpose for, for starting this. But, you know, if we go back to the book, back to the people that you are talking about, um, when I was reading it, there was um, this one thing that um, I'm sure that a lot of people will be wondering or have been wondering before if they've never had the opportunity to talk to someone who actually does undercover investigations. Um, mm. How do you deal with the fact that um, you are there, you're witnessing, but you can't offer help to the animals that you're directly involved with? This is part of the heartbreaking um, reality of, of doing investigations. And, and this is one of the many reasons why few of us could do investigations. And there are many. I mean, this is physically dangerous work. Slaughterhouses are one of the most dangerous jobs in, in the nation. And it's emotionally traumatizing work to, to witness so much cruelty and, and not be able to immediately intervene. For us, we have to take the big picture view. You know, there's, as I said, 9 billion animals every single year in the United States alone, 300 every single second. You know, this isn't an issue where we can rescue our way out of it. We can't rescue individual animals on factory farms and pretend that that's going to, to have a fundamental um, shift take place as a result of it. It's important that we do that. It, these, you know, it matters to those animals and these animals can be ambassadors, but we just from a practical standpoint, 
we can't save 9 billion animals by direct rescue. We have to address these issues at the core, which is through policy change and through consumer demand for meat, dairy, and egg products. These investigations, you know, they don't happen in a vacuum. We use these investigations to push for the largest change possible. And I tell the story, a, a number of stories in the book about that, including investigations leading to Nestle, the world's largest food company, uh, adopting the most sweeping animal welfare policy of its kind, um, getting hens out of battery cages, pigs out of gestation crates, calves out of veal crates, ending the mutilation of cows and pigs, changing you know, slaughter practices for chickens, this really originated from one investigator and one investigation. But we use these cases not only to push for immediate um, criminal charges for those that, that are violating the law, but um, to, to change laws and to push for national policies. Without these videos, we oftentimes wouldn't be able to do that. We wouldn't have the evidence necessary to bring these companies to the table. Uh, we wouldn't have the evidence necessary to launch powerful campaigns to get these companies to take note. And we wouldn't have the evidence necessary to get law enforcement to take action. So yes, it is heartbreaking to know that the animals in front of the investigators um, who are going to, to you know, die even if they're not standing there and suffer even if they're not standing there, it's heartbreaking to not be able to help them. But this work is really for the generations to come after them. Um, and making sure that they are spared the worst abuses or that they're hopefully um, you know, never born into a factory farm to begin with. One of the parallels that um, struck me when I was reading about this um, is the fact that not just the business approach, but the pragmatic approach to, to activism, which is often related to the way that vegan businesses approach it, I'm talking about making the biggest impact instead of making an immediate impact or, you know, wanting to get a large number of people to just considerably drop their animal products consumption instead of getting a handful to, to go completely vegan. That sort of approach is occasionally attacked because um, it is viewed as somehow not pure enough or not dedicated enough. So um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on that parallel with the um, investigators. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we are not in the movement of needing to win arguments and debates, but to win hearts and minds. And the animals need us to be more than to be right. They need us to be effective. And you know, I would love for the whole world to go vegan tomorrow, but I also want to do the most good for the largest number of animals possible. And if that means more people going meatless on Monday than making no change in their diet, that's a positive step. If that means, you know, a large number of people cutting their meat consumption in half, that's a positive step. And I think that us as a movement, we do need to celebrate progress. There's so many psychological studies that are done that show that the foot in the door approach is very effective. You know, if people feel like it's all or nothing from the beginning, they will oftentimes do nothing. But if people feel that they can take small steps, and they can see that it's easy, in this case, delicious, you know, convenient, it's not so bad, they actually feel better from doing it physically, mentally, emotionally, then meatless on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday becomes much more doable. And 
again, we, we need to drive down meat consumption in this country. And if that means that there are more flexitarians in the world, that's a good thing for animals. I think a lot of vegans forget what life was like before they had their aha moment. And I think that there is so much judgmental, um, you know, behavior in the movement that can be so off-putting to pre-vegans or people that haven't, you know, thought of this yet. And I understand where this comes from. We are oftentimes angry. We know how badly these animals suffer on factory farms. I've had animals die in my arms in these factory farms. I've stood in the middle of kill floors and watched animals dragged in and have their throats slit while conscious. I've watched hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage from factory farms around the, the globe. I understand the anger and the frustration and the passion, but we need to be effective. And that means we have to win people into making changes. I think that we shouldn't let purity be the enemy of progress. I really love that statement. And, you know, since we are touching on divisive topics, one of the things that you also touch on in the book is lab-grown meat. And we actually had a really cool conversation with uh, Bruce Friedrich on the topic. Agreed. But yeah. um, I would like to know how you personally feel about it. And what, what would you say to that large segment of the vegan population who feels that it's leading things in the wrong direction? Well, I'm a big supporter of it. Um, and again, this is one reason why I helped launch the Good Food Institute, because we wanted to be able to support this space and, and why New Crop Capital um, does investment in, in clean meat companies. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure Bruce did a really great job of, of sort of laying out the, the potential benefits of clean meat. You know, Uma Valetti, who started uh, uh, Memphis Meats, one of the premier uh, clean meat companies, he calls clean meat really the second domestication, which is cellular agriculture. The first being the domestication of, of farmed animals 10,000 years ago in the Neolithic period, which of course set us on the path to start human civilization as we know it today. Cellular agriculture and the second domestication being a reflection of our advancements in science and technology, but also our, our, our ethical and, and moral advancements as well. I think that, that clean meat has the potential to completely disrupt animal agriculture. And I'm sure Bruce um, you know, gave this example, but I'll give it again. If you look at what got overworked, abused horses off of the streets that were pulling horses and buggy, pulling carriages, in the searing heat and in the freezing temperatures, it wasn't just an ethical uprising. It was the invention of the Model T. It was something that was better than the outdated alternative. And I think clean meat will prove to be better than the outdated alternative, which is raising animals for food. And, you know, everyone listening to this understands what's wrong with raising animals for food, um, not only from the ethical side, but also the environmental side and the human health side. You know, early studies are showing that clean meat uses 50% less energy, over 90% less land and, and water, produce 90% less greenhouse gas emissions. So I think that this is an important technology that could be a game changer. And for vegans that don't want to eat clean meat, to that I say, that's absolutely fine. Don't eat clean meat. Eat lentil burgers, eat veggie burgers, eat everything else. 
that's absolutely fine. Clean meat is for the 98% that aren't vegan. And many of those people, unfortunately, are currently not interested in that. And the three driving forces for most people's food decisions are taste, cost, and convenience. And if if taste, cost, and convenience for clean meat can outcompete traditional animal products, um, and that becomes the default choice, that is going to be a very good thing for animals. And it's, I believe, going to be a very good thing for our environment. And from an environmental perspective alone, we absolutely must have innovative approaches. There's going to be nearly 10 billion people on this planet by 2050. And our current food system, as, as, as we know, is not sustainable. So, you know, this is something I think that goes beyond just a sort of inner vegan dialogue and really does become a matter of how can we save the planet from the catastrophe, which is climate change. I myself am actually really enthusiastic about the idea of clean meat, even though I can't see myself (laughs) consuming it either very often or at all. But um, what what really surprised me in a very positive way was that what Bruce mentioned about the um, how ready people are to to accept it when he's discussing the idea with with an audience and not a vegan audience like an omnivorous audience how many people are perfectly willing to to give it a try or would be perfectly willing to switch to that if it offered the same experience in terms of taste and um, I would say the same or better experience in terms of price and convenience. Absolutely. And I mean, part of what I find most exciting, quite frankly, is the fact that Cargill, one of the largest meat companies in the US, recently did an investment in Memphis Meats. Uh, And, you know, these companies, these, these meat companies really view themselves as protein companies. You know, they're not in the business of just wanting to cause a lot of animal suffering. They're in the business of making money in the protein space. And if clean meat gives them a a path forward to make money in the protein space with less liability, whether it's liability because of people's growing awareness and concern about animals or less liability because of environmental um, damage that traditional animal agriculture causes or, or human health liability because of Salmonella, E. coli, and Camelobacter um, from consuming animal products, uh, an- traditional animal products. I mean, these again are just basic business decisions, and this is why you know we're seeing the the energy sector, oftentimes um, the smart ones, moving towards clean energy as part of their portfolios. And we see this you know time and time again. Um, it, it's like with the, the, the horse and carriage. I mean, that was the transportation sector. It wasn't, you know, just the horse sector. So there are changes that can happen in entire sectors and the smart, savvy players are always looking for what's ahead that's going to revolutionize their industries. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bring this up because another thing that I was really thinking about is, as I was reading your book was um, considering how things are evolving what do you think about these traditional food brands or meat brands, protein brands, as we're now labeling them, buying stakes in vegan companies? I mean, these are some of the brands that you've investigated in the past, or yeah. at the very least, you know, they, you've stood on the opposite side from them. So 
can we consider them future allies and how can we consider them allies? I'm a big supporter of these companies like Tyson Foods, who we're still up against and battling. They're one of the few um, big companies that, that have really taken no meaningful action um, on behalf of, of broiler chickens. They slaughter 2 billion birds every single year. Yet I cheer when I hear that they do a 5% investment in Beyond Meat. So to me, this shows that the writing is on the wall. And this has been happening for, for quite some time, as you know, with dairy companies buying you know, soy milk and milk alternative uh, brands. Uh, Nestle uh, Foods just purchased Sweet Earth. This is happening all the time. And, and uh, Gardein being purchased by Pinnacle. And to me, this has some potential benefits. This could increase the distribution of these vegan products, get them in more people's hands, um, increase the advertising budget for some of these products, get making people more aware of them. And from my standpoint, as someone who wants to help the most animals, the more that we can have that compassionate plant-based alternatives be competitive on those three factors, cost, taste, and convenience, the better. And I think that oftentimes these large companies do provide opportunities for these plant-based products to be more competitive in top cost, taste, and convenience. So, you know, and I think the more that these companies like Tyson embrace these alternatives, the less hostile they're going to be to them in the marketplace and the more that they will embrace them. And I think that also is a positive thing for animals. Yeah. And um, just since we were discussing cellular agriculture before, um, another thing that's really gets me excited about this is the fact that a couple of months ago when I was talking to the Perfect Day guys, I don't know if you know them, but they're doing cellular agriculture on on the dairy side of things. And they're getting amazingly positive responses from the dairy industry, not even in terms of feeling threatened or anything. They're just excited for the fact that at some point in the future, they may not even need cows to to get milk to to create their cheeses or yogurts or you know bottle it as milk that's exactly right and you know as i said i don't believe that executives or, or people involved in the meat industry want to cause an incredible amount of suffering to a large number of animals i'm sure that there are sadists involved in in the the chain but most of them, they're business people and they're trying to, to um, excel in, in their field. And again, just on basic business principles, if there is a way to produce a product that's better, safer, more affordable, has less liability associated with it, of course, you're going to embrace that. You're going to be curious about that. The global meat industry is about a trillion dollar industry. I mean, we would be better off to have this large industry, in my view, embrace the changes that are happening with cellular agriculture, with plant-based meat, because that can be a lot of momentum behind it and shifting things. Just like, you know, getting big, again, um, energy companies behind clean energy is ultimately, I think, um, an important, uh, a, a important step forward. Yeah. And, you know, on, on the topic of business, if we move into the vegan business space, what do you personally see as, as the biggest opportunities opening up there? 
Well, you know, I'm really excited about a new company that, that we've been involved with called Good Catch, um, which is working mm-hmm. on vegan fish products that should be hopefully coming to the market by the end of next year. And it's really phenomenal. And, and this, I think, is an area that has been a bit underserved. You know, fish are, are clearly killed in the highest quantities. They endure horrible suffering on factory farms. But there's also the environmental catastrophe of trawler nets and, and, and essentially clear-cutting the oceans. Um, and mercury in fish, but it's, it's something that I think has, um, is a market opportunity uh, for there to be far more vegan fish alternatives, um, which will be a good thing for animals um, and, and our environment and our health as well. So I'm really excited about Good Catch and, and some of the, the work that's happening there. I would really like to see more of vegan seafood on the market, definitely. Mm-hmm. And are there any particular products that we need more of to you know, just bridge the gap between people who are vegan and people who are just trying things out? Like I said, I, th- I think that that, that seafood uh, area or, or, or fish um, is an area where we, we do need more products in that space. I think the Impossible Burger is helping to break into new territory of what a meatless burger can can be and is certainly attracting a lot of excitement there. So I would love to, to see further innovation and the use of heme and things and other meat alternative products. I think that, that will... Um, further close the gap between what meat eaters think of plant-based alternatives. I think there's work to be done on egg alternatives. Um, I know Hampton Creek has a, a scramble that, 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 that is supposed to be coming out soon, which, which is good. But I think that, that there's a lot more work that can be done um, with egg alternatives that can be easily used um, by consumers um, in, in place of eggs. And this is really all in the U.S. I think the cheese still has a long way to go before it is is really on par with what most consumers are used to eating with animal-based cheese. And then if we look at the global level, many countries outside of, of the U.S., their alternatives to, to animal products are a, at least a decade behind what we have here. So I think the, the next stage is to to get these alternatives to be much more widely available, um, not only in the U.S., but globally, and for the pricing to come down. So they're not just a, a niche product, but they are um, a, a cost-competitive product as well. I can kind of relate to that because um, we, we really like the, the Califia milks that um, are available down here in Mexico. But the last time that I found them in the supermarket, they were like, $10 a bottle or something like that. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they cost less in the States. Yeah, I'm, I hear you on the bringing down price point. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just on the global scale, since you do have presence in, in India and China, how, how do you see those economies moving in, in this direction? It's a good question. In, in, in India, you, know, you have a large vegetarian population, but sort of the opposite is happening there than is happening here. You're having um, meat consumption actually rise as especially young people come into more education, more wealth, and look to the West um, for what that means, which is unfortunately more of a, a meat-centered diet. So you have you know, the McDonald's and the KFCs coming into to these countries, um, which is obviously a bad thing. And with it, um, more more factory farming and the use of animals. Uh, you know, if you look at a global level, only about two percent of farmed animals are in the United States. About 
50% of them are in China, um, much of them being fish. So the Chinese government, they, they updated their dietary recommendations and actually reduced the amount of meat in those recommendations. But there's really no major effort by, by the government to, I think, actually drive down meat consumption um, in, in China. So it is, it is a challenging situation, but, but we um, have helped uh, launch a, a company in India that is helping to, to bring accessible and inexpensive high protein plant-based um, meals in India. You know, most of the, the population um, there do not have access to refrigerators. Their daily income is substantially, substantially less than the U.S. So it's it needs to be a very different approach um, from a business standpoint. You know, we can't just go in with frozen, you know, veggie burgers and expect those to be widely available in India. So, you know, you start to look at, you know, more TVP products or products that can, um, you know, be, be shelf stable and the cost needs to be much lower, which means that they need to be produced within the countries as opposed to being imported, which carry, you know, just a lot of costs all across the board. So each country is different, but I think that these are some of the, the big picture opportunities um, and, and challenges there. But I would, I would love to see more plant-based uh, companies starting um, uh, around the, the globe. But, but certainly India and, and China are two really important places for that. And with the hope that they could be cheaper or at least cost comparative to the traditional animal products. Because with the goal of helping animals, I don't want to just create a, a market of niche products that are premium in price, but to have ones that are accessible to everyone. And I think that's the only way in which we're going to really be able to drive down the suffering that animals uh, endure in factory farms. And to end this on that note, if, if you're allowed like total freedom to, to imagine the best possible future, like 10, 20 or 30 years from now, what would it look like? Like, what's our food system and how, how do we perceive animals? Yeah, well, it's, it's a food system without animals, without animal agriculture, without factory farming. And I, I think, quite frankly, it's the only viable path forward. So, you know, I think we need to be moving in that direction um, at you know, lightning speed. There was a study done recently that I found was, was pretty interesting. They, they took a, a group of people, they split them in two, they put them in, you know, waiting rooms, they gave one room, um, essentially mixed nuts and, and berries and, and plant-based snack foods. The others they gave, you know, meats and cheeses. And that wasn't the focus. This was just happened to be there. And then they asked the the different focus groups, their questions about, are animals smart? Do their lives matter? Should we protect them? Same questions to both groups. And the group that just happened to be given the plant-based snacks scored much higher on their response to those questions, which sort of leads, I think, to sometimes attitudes can follow behaviors, which I, I think we see a lot of times with people who go vegan for health reasons, and then they embrace uh, the fact that farm animals matter and that, yes, they're intelligent because they no longer need to justify their behavior because they're not involved in it anymore. Yeah, that was and me. So I, I, <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, this, this is a strong argument for, you know, clean meat or for um, having inexpensive alternatives and having it be widely available. And I think 
as we get there more and more, the relationship that people have with animals will improve because people aren't having to justify eating certain animals. But I absolutely believe that we can get there. And I think sometimes innovation in a space can transform industries much faster than people ever thought possible. You know, if you think about just the way that we communicate and how that dramatically changed with social media and how, you know, the iPhone and iTunes dramatically changed how people receive music and how they interact with music. I mean, history is crowded with examples of technologies and innovations that make something Uh, The old way of doing things appear outdated because it is and inefficient, which it is. The ability for for things to flip so quickly is is absolutely possible. And that's, that's why I'm so excited about the work that's being done in the clean meat and plant-based sector. And I think that it is absolutely essential um, to our success as a movement helping animals. Yeah. And, you know, on, on that, since I mentioned that new crop capital was one of the catalysts for the plant-based entrepreneur show, they started about a year and a half ago. And, and since then, I believe there have been about three or four new venture capital funds launched specifically for plant-based foods or plant-based products in general. And I'm aware of at least two more that are just being formed right now. So, you know, if you compare that with just one 18 months ago to about, what, seven or eight, which means that in another year's time, we might have 15 or 20 on scene. That's just amazing. It's incredibly exciting. Um, it gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nathan, it it was really an honor to, to be talking to you. And thank you so much for, for sharing all of this. So to for anyone who wants to find out more about your work or support Mercy for Animals or buy your book, where should they go? Yeah, they can simply go to mercyforanimals.org. We are funded essentially exclusively by donations. So people can become a donor. They can become a monthly donor. Um, They'll receive our magazine, uh, discount on merchandise. Uh, People can also follow us on all the social media channels. It's simply at Mercy for Animals. They can buy my book, uh, Everywhere that books are sold, Amazon, Kindle, uh, everywhere. Yeah. And the book is called Mercy for Animals. And I totally recommend it. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. And um, you have an amazing day and keep on doing the amazing work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. You too. It was an honor. All right. So that was Nathan Runkel, the founder and executive director of Mercy for Animals on episode 44 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. You want to find out more about the things that we talked about, or if you want to get the transcript of this interview, you can find it all in the show notes at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com forward slash show forward slash episode 044. And if you're buying Nathan's book on Amazon, I'd really appreciate it if you use our link on that website because, well, you'll get the same price and we'll receive a few percent commission that will help us continue with the work that we're doing. As always, if there's anything you want to talk about, reach out on Facebook or email me directly at jerry at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com. And if you have a growing plant-based business or know a vegan entrepreneur who we should host on the podcast, please let me know. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I think it was both inspiring and very useful, both for nonprofit and regular businesses. 
And um, we'll be back again soon with more great content. So until then, stay awesome and remember, the future is plant-based.